Hello and welcome to We're Totally Not Okay. But that's okay. A podcast about the intersection between mass media culture and mental health. I'm Kaylee Legrand. And I'm Tanya Bevan. <laughs> Echoes. And today we have an incredible guest that we've been trying to get in contact with for a little while now. Uh, Christina Vero, who is a psychotherapist and a holistic nutritionist. And your PR... Uh, management team got in touch with us and it was kind of just out of nowhere that we were able to find this connection and we're really excited to finally be sitting down with you. Oh, so. thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, it took us a while, but we are here and I'm excited to be chatting with you both. We are excited too. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So to start off, why don't we let our audience know a little bit about what it is that you do, what it means to be a psychotherapist and a holistic nutritionist? Sure. Yeah. So a holistic nutritionist basically looks at the root cause of different symptoms rather than just saying, oh, let's look at those symptoms themselves. So it's about looking at lifestyle, eating habits, all those things, and seeing how can we get to what's actually going on beneath the surface. And then registered psychotherapists, basically, it's a form of talk therapy. So we help talk about problems out loud and help people find strategies or solutions on how to basically improve their lives. So where I'm a little bit different, I think, is that I have expertise in both because my big thing is that I want to look at both areas holistically. So I found from my personal experience that what I eat really affects my mood or my mood really affects what I eat. And so I've done a lot of research as well that shows that there's a big connection there with mental health issues. So what we eat might actually directly affect anxiety levels or it might directly affect depression, which I thought was really exciting because that means we can take charge of our health and that's something we can start doing today. Versus talk therapy, you might take a while to get to different issues and things like that. But nutrition, you can do that today. You can have a better breakfast, you can have a better lunch, you can have a better dinner. And so I thought that was really exciting. That is, it's incredible that those two worlds have, uh, I'm assuming, such difference, differences, but that there is this big overlap, obviously. How do they differ when it comes to treating people in an individualistic way? Mm -hmm. i.e., you know, not every diet is going to work for every single person. And I'm assuming that on the talk therapy side that it still doesn't function exactly the same way for every person. Totally. Yeah, that's something that you need to really pay attention to people's lifestyle specifically. And, and you're so right. Not every single diet plan is going to work for everybody. You have to keep in mind how they live their life, if it's going to work with their life. And same with talk, talk therapy. People like different approaches. So some people will come in and say, okay, I want this to be really structured. I want us to have a plan. I want, me, I want to have homework when I go home. And some people are way more casual about it or they don't really know where things are going to go. So just keeping that in mind for each individual person so that they feel like the treatment is working for them specifically is super important. Have you found that one way... Um, over the other works better, that somebody who does come in with that structured mindset is able to have a, a faster benefit from it, or that somebody who might have more of an organic approach 
uh, like, have you seen differences in those results? Yeah, I totally know what you're, you're asking. I think sometimes structure can be helpful. I do find that some people will come in and let's say they just want to vent about something for a long time. I'm okay with that, but then I do reach a point where I'm like, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And I think that that's something that sometimes therapists can be a little bit timid to do because we're trained to be very compassionate and very empathetic, which is really necessary. But then I also think we can do a disservice by not having any structure or any focus or any goals whatsoever. So I do sometimes like to bring that in myself to say, all right, what are we going to do? What's our plan? That kind of a thing. That's super interesting. I actually, that's one of the first questions that popped into my mind when I thought about sitting down with you because I've, I've played around with seeing a couple of different styles of therapists or psychotherapists or counselors. And for me, what's, what works really well, what I really enjoy doing is, is yoga. That seems to be my therapy right now. And, um, I've done some talk therapy in the past and I, I mean, I get similar feedback in my acting classes that I can be pretty over analytical about things, Mm. which is, it can be a detriment for me, but can also just be a path of really fun curiosity that I actually enjoy going down. Some people just don't love to I I get that it's also kind of like, great, we're talking in circles, let's just do something now. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to that, when it comes to like somebody like me, for instance, somebody who loves to talk, um, do do you find that you are sometimes in your sessions stopping that part of talk therapy and actually moving into some form of action? Do you ever do any form of uh, like, let's stop talking and either yes. get into yoga or do something that is not talking. Absolutely, because you're right. For certain people, I've noticed in session, they might get to a point where we're actually just going in circles. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I'll actually have to stop us and say, okay, I noticed that we were kind of going in circles. I'm a pretty straight shooter person, so I'll be really transparent. And then I'll say, you know, I don't even know at this point if there's any benefit from continuing to go in this circle. So why don't we stop? And sometimes I've left the building with them to go for a walk just around the building mm. and talk about something totally different. Or we might do some sort of movement exercise that's calming. Or let's say that they're going the opposite direction of shutting down. We might do a movement exercise that's stimulating. So it's just about kind of being really attuned to where the person is at and knowing what intervention would work best at that moment. And usually for people like you, it's about slowing down or interrupting because we want to actually change the circuitry in your brain. So sometimes if we just do the same thing that you're used to doing, we're making it stronger where we might mm-hmm. actually not be wanting to strengthening that pathway. Mm. So it comes back to the idea of neuroplasticity, which there's a lot of really cool research about, which is saying that we can train our brain and rewire it if we do the right things. Mm-hmm. I love that. That kind yeah. of answers the question that I had as a follow-up about how those two different things actually make that change. Mm-hmm. Do, would you be able to explain how an action affects the neuroplasticity sure. or versus how talking or a thought process like that can affect neuroplasticity? Absolutely. So. A good example of this would be probably binge eating because um, for people who are prone to binge eating, the neural pathway that says, okay, I have an urge to eat and then I'm going to binge is very, very strong. So that's what they're really, really used to doing. So we can talk about that over and over and over and over and over. But what we actually might need to start doing in practice is when they get an urge, learning how to just sit with that urge rather than acting on it. So we might have them do some breathing exercises. We might have them do some activities that distract them. 
um, we might really do anything other than the actual binge eating because then we're forming that new neural pathway that's like, okay, when I get this urge, I don't always have to binge. So actually when I get this urge, it might be, okay, I'm gonna color for a little bit or I'm gonna have a bath. And you can do two types of interventions. So one would be top down, which means that we're doing, we're talking about it on a very rational and cognitive level. Or you can go bottom up, which is we're going to actually tend to your body and your nervous system and chill that out. And then we'll talk about it later. So the baths, the coloring, the breathing, that would be all bottom up approaches. So those are practical things that actually target your physiology rather than just your cognitive level. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Is there a reason why the body is considered the bottom, the base, and the thought process is considered top? Yes. Yeah, so it comes actually back, if you look at our brain and how it formed from an evolutionary perspective, the reptilian brain is what it's called, is sort of our lower brain. So that's what every single animal has. That's our more primitive part where those urges, for example, when it comes to binge eating, that's where they're coming from. Or any response like the fight, flight, freeze response, that's from our lower primitive brain. So I think that's why we call it bottom up, because the more rational part of our brain, which would be like the prefrontal cortex and things like that, that actually developed later, evolutionarily speaking. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's sort of like the top part of our brain, because it was the last to develop. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay, I feel like I'm throwing out a lot of stuff, but... Stuff that we're all fascinated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, probably in uh, less of a way than it lands for you since you've studied so much in that endeavor. But it is stuff that we've been fascinated by. And um, especially when it comes to our acting techniques, we study with a coach in the city who is super guided by understanding mm -hmm. not only, um, not necessarily the psychology of a human or of a character, but this science of neurology and how we train ourselves into particular habits, how characterization can be understood in terms of the different sorts of habits or neurological pathways, the loops that we've created for ourselves. Um, and obviously those can come from the quote unquote backgrounds that you understand yeah. of characters. So maybe understanding about somebody's history can help us figure out how they came to develop certain patterns. Um, so it's it's very in tune with what we're interested in. and That's cool. It, yeah, I think that's why we also love talking about these sorts of conversations yeah. in our podcast. And I also seem to reflect in some of the material I was reading in your book, The Anxious Teen. Uh, let's go ahead and plug that right now. There's a book <laughs> that Christina has written, and it's a guide for parents, teachers, and mentors. And it does talk about um, formative years for teens and how they come to essentially have those particular patterns or characterizations. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what you've learned in terms of you know, breaking down the background yes. of those characters, yeah. those people. So I start my book by talking a lot about brain science, and I sort of geek out in the book, but and it's not for any other reason other than to help parents, teachers, mentors, whoever sort of gain some compassion for what's going on. Because I think a lot of teachers or parents or whoever sometimes think that teens are doing things intentionally to be annoying or difficult, but actually there's a lot of stuff going on that sets them up to you know, be emotional or be irrational or whatever. So one of the things being what I was just talking about, that prefrontal cortex doesn't develop until we're about 25. Mm -hmm. And so the part of us that's a lot more 
um, irrational, spontaneous, that kind of a thing, it's, it's well developed earlier. Mm -hmm. And so that's why teens aren't really thinking long-term. They're not really thinking about risk management and things like that. And it's not because, again, they're trying to be difficult. It's because their brain isn't setting them up that way. And similarly with life stages, a big thing with teenagers is that their main goal at that life stage is to make friends and feel a sense of belonging and do what other people are doing. And so when parents are worried about them trying drugs or drinking or whatever, it's important to understand that it's happening in a context of trying to fit in and it might not be in the best way, but I find that when we have some understanding of what's going on, we can be a little bit more empathetic, at least from my experience. What makes you, what, what brings you to an understanding that somebody who has gone through that has been a teenager and, you know, I would assume also has in their mind, no, I know what you're, what you're going through. I've been there. I've been a kid. I'm right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're wrong kind of mentality. Um, where's the disconnect there? Why is there a need to make that bridge? Well, I think that a lot of the time when parents are saying, oh, I've been there, I know what you're talking about, in in many ways they do, but in many ways they also don't because there are a lot of things that are very different for teenagers now. And I think sometimes teenagers can feel that their parents don't understand because they'll say like, oh yeah, I've been in your shoes, I was bullied. And it's like, okay, maybe you were, but you weren't bullied 24-7 through social media of your Mm -hmm. friends or friends in quotations making fake Instagram accounts or commenting on things or making Facebook groups. Like that's something mm-hmm. that our our generation of parents didn't have to deal with. And so I think that something else I talk about in the book a lot is learning how to actually listen to teenagers in a way where they feel like you're listening to them and also being able to absorb what they're telling you because there's a lot that we can learn from them. And once we're more engaged in what's actually happening in their world, then we can just be more efficient and more effective as parents, teachers, whatever. I think listening in general, not even just with the book, in general, people need to learn how to listen properly. It's so true. Especially in this generation, in this day and age, it's just... I know. People are listening, but they're not really listening. I know, and it's so funny, because I always say everybody should go to therapy, because I think it could be beneficial for everybody, but I also wish that everybody could do training to become a therapist, because I found that I learned so many skills that everybody should learn, like Mm -hmm. active listening, how to validate people, how to have compassion. These are things that I feel like everybody needs, and everybody can sometimes lack. So, yeah, I I totally am on the same page. I wish that we could just all have training to be therapists in an ideal world. It sounds very similar to even just acting techniques, and, and also similar to, like, my want when I started learning different ways of understanding how to become an actor, learning to have empathy for characters, learning how to listen to your partners on stage if you're doing an improv show and you're creating it all on the go. I had that same want. I'm like, everybody should become an actor. Everybody should learn this tool. That's so funny. Yeah, but you're right. I love how you're just saying with your acting partners. I think what you're talking about, what how I would interpret that in the therapy world is attunement to each other, right? So oh, just seeing what the other character needs and being like, oh, like with improv, oh, I better do this and how can we work together? Mm-hmm. Attunement is so important from therapists to the people you're working with or just as a couple, right? Like if you're attuned mm-hmm. to your partner and things like that. So it's so cool how these worlds interlap in their or overlap, sorry, in their own, own way. Mm-hmm. I love specifically the word attunement. I think especially from a, almost a sonic level, um, probably because I'm also obsessed with sound bowls and uh, meditation music and particular frequencies. I'm trying to understand now how different frequencies or even the same note with a different instrument 
affects the way that I feel. Wow. And and I'm not I am not classically trained in, in any kind of musical form. <laughs> um, but it's just become fascinating to me to understand what those different sorts of vibrations can do um, to you through your corporeal form, through the senses, and then how it affects you. And it just felt like it had a parallel to understanding somebody else's, making that attunement, like using a tuning fork to either bring, to, to find that for an instrument, to find that for yourself. How do you implement that practice when you're trying to create an attunement between you and either a patient or somebody who's just another person in your life or in a relationship in your own life? And are they different? Yeah. Great question. So what was coming to my mind actually, as you were talking was, um, I've worked with a lot of people who are very angry. So usually in couples therapy, unfortunately, there will be a lot of anger or resentment on one person's part or maybe both people's part or whatever. And when I first started giving therapy, anger was the one emotion I had a really hard time with. I could deal with people being sad. I could deal with people talking a lot, whatever. But anger, I found really, really hard. And so somebody would get angry and my tendency was to try to sort of calm them down and figure out strategies of how to calm them down. And I noticed I kept hitting a wall and it just wasn't working. And so I started trying to actually mirror their emotion in session. So they'd be, they'd be venting, they'd be really, really mad. And then I would sort of say, rather than, oh, I really understand, you're so angry, la-di-di. Like, you're really angry. You are so mad right now. This has been so hard for you. You've been dealing with this for so many weeks. I can't imagine how angry you must be. It must be terrible. And then boom, they would just calm down. So it felt so counterintuitive to sort of meet them up here emotionally, emotionally. But then I noticed that when they felt like I actually got it, like you said, from an energetic place, mm-hmm. that it helped to kind of calm them down. And I find that that's true with partners or whatever. Like there's nothing worse than venting to somebody and then being like, oh, you just need to calm down. This yeah. never goes well, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, even if I don't necessarily know why somebody's particularly upset, I can at least sort of let them know that it makes sense to me that they're upset and try to energetically match that just to bring them down. Mm-hmm. And so do you find that's the same sort of practice in your own life and relationships? Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many things that, like I was saying, I wish that everybody became a therapist because I use all of these tools in my everyday life. And I think that that's something that people don't realize is that therapists what good therapists, I would say, um, really do try to practice these skills in their own lives. And I at least really, really try to practice what I preach. And, you know, I look just as bad as the next person when I'm not practicing good mental health habits, right? So it's it's an effortful thing. It's like physical health. You've got to go to the gym. You've got to also do these things intentionally. And I think people don't really realize that. I think they just think, oh, well, you know, if I go to therapy enough, I'll just wake up happy. And it's like, no, you've got to do a lot of stuff, you know? Which I don't say to be discouraging, but it's more so that it's a practice, mm-hmm. just like anything else. Yeah, it's not like going to the gym and watching the trainer just do right, it all yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> Having to step up and do the work, do yeah. the homework. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get into this line? Did you always know that you wanted to become a therapist or help people in some sort of way? No, I didn't. <laughs> so I finished my undergrad degree when I was really young. I was 20. And I left university and was like, I have no idea what I want to do. So I just did more school because that felt like a safe thing to do. (laughs) And I got my master's degree in journalism. And then I was working as a journalist for a bit. And um, I was working on a documentary about prescription drug abuse. And documentaries involve a lot of interviewing um, 
over and over again with the same person on like maybe a news story. And so I'd really get to know these people and some really horrific things that happened to them. And then we would develop pretty good connections and they would be really candid with me. And the whole interviewing process felt very therapeutic for them, just that they were sort of sharing their story with somebody. And then we finished the documentary and that was that. Never really talked to these people again, never really knew what happened to them. And I thought, man, that really sucks. I would really like to go the next level. And so that's what's kind of led me to therapy in a very non-linear way. But I'm really happy that I made the career shift. I, it involved going back to school. It involved a lot of stuff. But it's really nice because I think that giving back to other people and helping out was what I was missing before. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that resonates with me. I come from the world of journalism as well. And wow. I think that's why I like having interviews with people and sitting down and getting to have that part of my desires fulfilled, that part where I'm not getting to actually do that as a journalist anymore. Um, do you find that storytelling, the art and the craft of storytelling, which was such a big part of being a journalist and creating documentaries, did the tools around storytelling ever bleed into what your practice is today? Absolutely. I think one skill that came from journalism as well was being really curious as to why things are the way they are. And I think when you use that as a therapist as well, you can be a lot more non-judgmental because you're not saying, what's wrong with you? You're saying, well, how did, you, how did these things happen? You know, from, from a much more neutral place and curious place. But also with storytelling, I love that because it's true. Because sometimes I'll... I'll listen to what people have gone through and they're essentially telling me their story and I think sometimes where therapists can be helpful is thickening that story a little bit and, and looking at things that maybe they missed and maybe looking at other plot lines that give them a different story overall so that they can live in a way that's more true to them or maybe just encapsulates more things that are going on because a lot of people will come in telling me all about the negative or all about this one storyline, so to say, that fits that's this narrative that they've developed about themselves. So let me tell you about all the times where I've messed up in my life, or let me tell you about all the times that our relationship has gone badly. And then we can sort of say, well, what were times when things went really well, when you used actually skills that are really helpful to you? Tell me about those times. And then they develop this other storyline in the background. And that's pretty cool, because then they think, oh, so I'm not just bad at everything. You know, I'm also really good at things. And just it just becomes a more well-rounded picture. That is a super interesting way of putting it, thickening the storyline, because yeah. I was wondering how you would make that shift. If somebody is coming in for talk therapy, uh, a lot of the time I'm assuming it's because they have things that they don't appreciate, they, they don't like right. in their life and they're trying to change it. So they're going to talk about the things that, mm -hmm. that don't make them happy, the negative things. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was curious about as to how you help them find that shift into a different perspective into a positive perspective and finding things that they don't already have. Like it's not easy to just flip a switch and say, let's look totally. at that one thing that you're already completely upset about mm -hmm. and find the happiness in it. Mm -hmm. But thickening the storyline to find other places of their lives to start making those changes. Yeah. I'm, and that's such a storyteller sort of right? way to yeah. flesh out, you know, well, what's the B story? What's the C story? Exactly. And then like, let's, let's slowly bleed that back into the A story. Yes. Yeah. And it's not about positive thinking. It's just about accurate thinking is always how I phrase it. So it's mm -hmm. not like, oh, just tell me about the positive moments in, in your life. It's more so... 
I don't really think that you've always messed up in your life. That just can't be accurate, right? So tell me about, just let's, let's look at a more accurate picture of yeah, it. Yeah, you're still alive, so something's exactly. happening, right? Exactly, you came here today, you're wanting to better yourself, so something's been going well, exactly. That's cool. Hey guys, We're Totally Not Okay is part of the Sonar Network, a curated collective of the best in Toronto podcasting. Here's a quick word from one of our fellow Sonar podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm Danny Stover and I host the daily blog to podcast only in Toronto. But today I'm here to talk to you about Live from the Center. Live from the Center is a brand new comedy podcast about a fictional cooperative office space called The Center and the idealists who work there. It's a satirical talk show hosted by the wonderfully skeptical B. Gordon Mackay. Three years ago, I experienced a personal setback. After 18 months of soul-searching and disastrous online dating, I signed on as a member of The Center. Here I found a cooperative workspace of gentle warriors who every day fight the good fight. And now, as host of our very own podcast, it is my honor to share their stories with you, our beloved listeners. This is Live from The Center. Every week, B. Gordon meets changemakers whose hearts are in the right place, even if their ideas aren't. Organizations like Huga Divorce, My name is Dr. Christiana. I am the world's first Huga Divorce lawyer. We help facilitate one of the most traumatic experiences of your life and combine it with the Danish practice of being cozy. Welcome to one of my sessions. Derek and Carol, thanks for joining me. Now, Carol, you were telling me there were some problems with your marriage, which is why you decided to divorce Derek. Would you please elaborate? I feel like he wasn't present for Mm. me and that I was often left alone. Derek. Mm. Derek, just... Open up your eyes. You're, I think you fell into a nap there. There are limitless organizations at the center, from the Animal Literacy Group to the Republican Party of Muskoka. And their ideas range from the almost plausible to the completely inappropriate. What is Backpack Jack all about? Now, Backpack Jack is all about what you got to pack in your backpack. There's a lot of people who are carrying around knapsacks and don't know that a knapsack is just like a backpack. You can put a lot of snacks in your backpack. Simone from Anti-Troll, tell us about it. Trolls are brutal, and I have an insatiable appetite to kill trolls. It's Devin, male sex robot ambassador. Hello, B. Georgian. Uh, B. Gordon, thank you. Live from the center, improvised by some of the best improvisers in Canada. So please, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because ridiculous ideas can change the world. And now back to the show. So I'm assuming that you've also used your journalistic background, your storytelling abilities with writing the book. What made you decide to take that step and publish a book? I think it was just from hearing from a lot of people that they were really confused as to why teenagers are so anxious and just had really no idea on what to do about it. And so the desire to learn was there, but I didn't really feel like the resources were there for them. So that was the main motivation. It was just trying to meet a need that I was hearing people had. And why specifically teens? Are teenagers what you specialize in when it comes to your talk therapy as well? I do work with a lot of teenagers. I also work with couples, families. Um, So usually it's about 10, 10 years old and up that I work with. But teenagers, I think it was just because I was really connecting with them well, because I'm still pretty young. And so they would come in and just talk to me. 
And so I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I'm in a really privileged position that these teenagers who maybe haven't really been talking to their parents much, haven't been talking to their teachers much, I was getting this really cool insight into what was actually going on in their lives. And so I thought I could definitely use that to shed some light. And I think that's how I approached the whole book is through a really compassionate uh, lens, just because I did hear firsthand what they were going through. And so I tried to bring that to parents, teachers who maybe just aren't hearing from them directly. Mm. So do you, when you deal with a family, are you sitting down with the child, mother and father, or the child and the yeah. parent at the same time? Are you ever having individual sessions with all of them completely separately? Yeah, so sometimes I do a little bit of both. Um, so it might happen that the family comes in together, I meet with them a few times, and then if I see, okay, well maybe we need to work on this one thing with this individual, then I'll see them individually and then kind of come back. But yeah, sometimes you can have four people in the room. At the most I've had in the room at the time is five other people and me. And oh, wow. Yeah. That must be, is that more of a challenge for you to maintain the mediator role? Do you find that that kind of power sort of gets dispersed amongst every, everyone? Yeah, you have to be a lot more structured in those sessions because otherwise you could really just have people arguing the whole time. But mm -hmm. it's also cool because everybody's there. And so you can see all of the strengths that people are bringing. You also can see the whole picture of what's going on. So it's kind of fruitful in that way. But you definitely need to be structured a little bit more upfront, a little bit more directive, just to make sure that it goes smoothly. Yeah. Otherwise, you get dominated, right? Yeah. Mm. Well, and, and every session, I'm assuming, is very, very different. But have you found... Um, Maybe you can talk about some trends that you have found that you may have spoken about in the book or outside of it. Something that seems to be a regular either occurrence of realizations that parents have had or breakthroughs or maybe common disconnects. Is there is there some sort of commonality that you're experiencing in those particular settings? Yeah, I find a big theme I see across teenagers, and actually adults as well, I will say, is there's this really big propensity to compare to other people. And I think a lot of that has to do with Instagram, Facebook, mm -hmm. all of these things, because mm -hmm. you follow people who you find aspirational. And then Instagram has an algorithm that says, well, if you followed this once, then we're going to throw a bunch more like it your way. So let's say you liked a you know, fitness models photo once, then all you're going to start seeing is fitness models on your Instagram feed. And then you're just going to be thinking, oh my gosh, my body doesn't look like that or whatever. And so it's a really big thing that I've seen is just comparing constantly. The same thing happens with parents, actually, with especially moms, right? Of thinking, oh, I'm not doing as much as this mom, or I'm not doing as much as that mom. What does that say about me? So that's something that I've seen as this really big overarching trend in general is just helping people realize that we're all on our own timeline, thank God, because, you know, we, we want things to be happening organically for us. I mean, if I hadn't have been a journalist, I wouldn't have been led here. So just having some appreciation and acceptance that we are learning what we need to learn at the right time and just mm -hmm. letting it happen. In terms of social media, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, firstly, do you find that, and maybe this is an unfair question, but has it gotten harder for kids these days? And do you, what sort of advice do you offer to people? What are your opinions on social media today? 
You know, I'm of mixed mind because I've met some teenagers who don't really have many friends and they develop these amazing online communities for themselves, which really help them feel less alone and give them a lot of resources and give them a lot of tools. And so I really like that aspect of it. But I think from a day-to-day -day perspective, it does bother me just because one thing that I notice is that teens feel like they cannot disconnect from their phone ever. Not because they don't want to disconnect, but because they'll almost get punished for being unavailable. So I worked with a teenager who said, you know, I come home and I, I want to turn my phone off, but if I do, I'll get like 30 texts from my friends saying, oh, are you mad at us? And so they just don't get that space to relax and do another hobby or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, the other one would be just, again, the comparing yourself all the time and getting a lot of self-esteem from things like likes or whatever, mm -hmm. comments that you get. So it does create sort of this perfect storm of insecurity and pressure to always be on and always feel like you're performing something. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, it's helping teens or people in general just sort of figure out what limits would work best for them and how they're going to instill those. And most of the time, surprisingly, teens are like, yep, I actually would like some limits because it's getting too exhausting. And that's when I say, like, our parents could never really understand what that was like because we could just come home and unless somebody wanted to call us on the phone, then we, we could do what we wanted. But now it's just, you know, Snapchat streaks of you have to keep it going. I don't know if you guys have heard of those, but oh, it's yeah. just like this. No, I don't know Oh, my gosh. It's like you get an award for, like, say, Snapchat five days in a row. It's like it's like awards. It's dumb. Yeah. Wow. And it's just this pressure of always needing to be accessible, which I think would be really draining. That's exhausting. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's I've, I've always been of mixed minds as well. I mean, I understand... I understand how it fits into running a business, to being accessible to your public, to being able to have more control over shaping your own brand, and, and especially being in the entertainment industry. I mean, I, ha I created a separate Facebook account um, because it, I was told to in a contract for a film that I was a part of. Wow. And part of the stipulations also said that I was supposed to be tweeting like 60 times a day. And just the, the amount of marketing that's pushed onto the individual that we're supposed to also have yeah. teams for that other people like that if they choose that to be their career that should be part of it it's bleeding into this entrepreneurial world that everybody feels like they need to wear all of the hats for so running true. their business so in a way it's great to be able to have more of that control and to have the end result be a little bit more at arm's length but it also means that you're that it's pushing back on you, that resistance is of is taking away from the time that you can have for yourself. Exactly. And I listened to two back-to-back -back episodes of very different podcasts, one that was about marketing, and one of the tips that the hosts gave was every time you look at your email, deal with it then and there so that you're not mm. leaving it and then maybe not, never responding or creating a longer time frame. But the amount of emails that he was also doing every single morning, he would wake up to at least 120. And because he lives in the world of mass media marketing, it, it was a very natural thing for him. And he was smart about designating the timeframes during his day when he was going to allow himself to do that. But the idea of, oh, if you open it, you have to deal with it right then and there Oof. is kind of daunting to me. And then I listened to another episode that was more of an entertainment uh, podcast interviewing a comedian filmmaker that I adore, Bo Burnham, and 
a quote from him was something along the lines of um, the social media world having been created as a result of everybody wanting to perform and to be seen performing. Yeah. And so it was created, and there you go, that's your prison, now you live in it. So those have two very different minds of yeah. the power that we have to be able to connect through the internet, but then how that power is not necessarily always perceived as just at like sometimes we feel like we are taken over by it absolutely it's making me think too i once gave this talk at a high school and afterwards there was somebody else who was giving a presentation and it was about how these students who i believe were in grade 10 could start curating their online brand so that they were more appealing to universities and the message that was sent was if you don't do this you could not get into your school because Johnny over here, who has been working on his Instagram for the past three years, will have more of a competitive advantage. And I thought, what the hell is It's that? so backwards. Yeah, oh. if you want to learn, if you want to have a good education, you need to already have shaped your image to be appealing to those who are going to teach you. And as if you know what your image, in quotations, is when you are in, when you're 15, I mean, well, really. Like, like you said earlier, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25 years old. Yeah, I mean, you know, let so these people that? figure Let's it out. Let them be kids, let them explore, let them play, like. Yeah, I'm beyond 25 and I don't know what my image is right? supposed to be. I know, could you imagine? And then these poor students, I felt so bad. They were coming up to me afterwards, because a lot of them will talk to me just on the breaks or whatever, and some of them were saying, I don't even like Instagram, what should I do about this? And I was like, you know what, you stay offline. <laughs> Yeah. I hope that other presenter doesn't know I was doing that, but I'm just like, you do you. If you want to just never have an online Instagram account or a Facebook account, just do it. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I was so stressed myself, and I was like, I'm not even a teenager, and I left that so stressed. I cannot imagine what it's like to be a teenager these days. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, like we've been talking about, I remember from what I can remember from my teenage days, I remember, you know, feeling the angst and feeling not understood. And I can only imagine how amplified that would feel in terms of, you know, not having fully understood who you are and still trying to figure it out. Like being on such uneven footing, which can be a very exciting time. You're developing yourself, but it's, it seems like it's just pressure from all different angles these days. Totally. And and your reference point, probably when you said you felt misunderstood, was other people in your class. Or like, am I measuring up to these people at my high school in my grade? Whereas now people's reference point is the world. Yeah. yeah. So this person on YouTube who's a makeup artist who has 2 million subscribers and is my age, why am I not able to do that? You know, it's just... It's just a bit much. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Not just the peers in your school anymore or your family or yeah. outside of whatever it was. And I moved around a lot as a kid. So every time I would move, it's like, oh, okay, a different school setting. But it was the same kind of, ah, I, get, I, I understand the playing field. I can see from the outside the different archetypes. And it was, for me, I enjoyed that. My sister was complete opposite and was like, why are we uprooting when, you know, We've got a good thing going on here. So everybody has their own different perspective. And I can only imagine that it's also sort of the same thing in the online world where you're also being fed back according to advertisers are taking a look at what you're looking at, like you were saying, and they're feeding the same thing back to you. So it's just, it's it's a larger school of wherever you are putting oh, your attention totally. and your energy. And even if you were to hop into another one, it's, it's just a different school of that kind of online activity exponentially. And to add on top of that, these kids are only seeing the best of the best what people are posting, you know? You don't know what their real life is like, you know? They, 
it's curated. It's, it's curated. It's chosen. It's not showing that they're sitting at home depressed, hanging out with their dog, eating a whole bowl of Ben and Jerry's ice cream because they've had a bad day. You, know? mm-hmm, you exactly. just see the happiness and the good things that are going on, which just kids don't understand or haven't been shown that. You know, so it's kind of yeah disappointing, and I can see how difficult it could be to be a teen right now. But, you know, on a more hopeful note, it, what I really like about teens is that they're really malleable and they're mm-hmm. really willing to learn. I mean, you ask adults to do stuff and maybe they've been doing the same thing for the past you know, 20 years and so it's a lot harder of a switch. Whereas you could say to a teenager, maybe we should set some limits around your phone and they're like, okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sometimes, because they're pretty game to try things, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And then when you teach them these really helpful lessons when they're young, they carry them into their adulthood and their adult years. So that's really rewarding. Yeah. It's like uh, that saying you can't teach a dog, an old dog new tricks. And in the formative years, it's so much easier to create those patterns, those habits exactly. that are going to lead to a yeah. more sustainable future for them, a healthier future for them. Right. And you hope that, okay, maybe them talking to their friend about how they're not going to be at their phone at 5 p.m. that day will maybe make their friend think about that. And so you, you hope that there's a ripple effect of some kind. Yeah. Well... I know that we have our own practices <laughs> to be able to try to reform our habits or to calm ourselves down or to be more aware. And we chatted about having a one cool thing and either it being something that other people can take action for themselves or for others or something that we can do ourselves. Do you have something that you wanted to share? Sure. One cool thing I've been doing lately myself is every morning I will text my partner saying, what are you looking forward to? And then every night I'll say, what are you grateful for? And it sounds super cheesy, and it is super cheesy, I'm fully aware, but I actually find it super helpful because you wake up actually in a positive space, and you go to bed in a positive space. So I really have found it helpful. Have you heard of Dr. Amen? No. No, he's a he's a brain-type like type doctor. He's got a bunch of great books, A-M-E-N, a lot about um, training your brain and rewiring the brain. And his cool. wife is a nutritionist. I believe she's a nutritionist. But she has a book about food health. So it's kind of, I feel like you'd really enjoy them. And one thing he does every morning is, today is going to be a great day. I don't know why, but it's going to be, or my inner self, my inner being will figure it out, but it's going to be a great day. Now he wakes up every morning and says, it's going to be a great day. Yeah, so when he said that, I was like, oh, I wonder if she's heard of him. But yeah, you should check out Dr. Armin. I should. That sounds right up my alley. Lots of really good books I want to get, but I just haven't been able to. The library's here, though. Oh, very American. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think you'd really enjoy him. Yeah, for sure. That is really cool. Is that your one cool thing? Uh, It could be, but mine was going to be a little more on the social media type thing. What I've been doing lately is turning my phone off an hour before I go to bed and not turning it on until I've done my morning duties, like brush my teeth, have my coffee started, and things like that. So I give myself an hour before I go to bed, no electronics or anything, just so that, you know, those blue lights and stuff are terrible for your brain waves. And then, yeah, just waking up in the morning and not being on social media and being like, so what are people up to, you know, like getting my life organized for the day. Yeah, so that's kind of been that. my one cool thing I've been implementing lately. I've been a lot better in the mornings of not depending like if what wakes me up is a a ding or an email or something if I forgot to turn the sound off on my phone but I have been getting better about like not hopping on right away and checking emails or reading messages on social media or whatever Mm -hmm. 
but it's the evening things. It's like when it's I do hard. editing, I have that app that turns my screen on my computer my orange. Yeah, to take away yeah. the blue light. But and it's a slow fade. Like you can, um, it's what is it called? Uh, flux, I think. Yeah, flux, and you can set it so that it knows when you typically go to sleep and when you wake up, mm -hmm. so that it has that slow gradient of transitioning into the, the orange light at the appropriate time so that your brain can start decompressing Whoa. and getting ready for bed. Yeah, my my issue, oh, I should put it on my phone, I guess, too. Yeah. My issue is that if I'm doing work at night, like if I'm editing a photo, I do photography as well. So if I'm editing a photo or if I'm editing a film, I... I can tell it starts to change. I'm like, why? Did, like, this is not the, these are not the colors I was working with. I don't understand why it's like different. Oh, and I'll turn off the flux. I'm like, I need to keep working. And Aww. so I just go back to the blue light and I keep working like Aww. until I finally am like, okay, now I can. Sounds like you need to give yourself a schedule and stop working at a certain hour. You know, also maybe less coffee. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> there, there are lots of opportunities for me, which is super exciting. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, on the opposite note, my one cool thing is an app, <laughs> and but it is so cool. I need to share it. It's um, uh, so for for when you do have your blue lights on and you're playing around. For those who are also artists and creators, my friend shared an app called Adobe Capture, and I feel like I should have already known about it. I feel I felt a little bit of shame for not already knowing about it when he was telling me about this. But I'm currently designing some art for my own set of tarot and oracle cards. And I, I have some art, but I'm like, I don't really know. Like, it's all hand-drawn. It's come from just my moments of, of sitting by myself and, and drawing and painting or whatever just for a very, uh, that, that personal meditative time. But this stuff that I want to use now, moving it into this product. And he's like, you've never heard of Adobe Capture? I've never heard of it. Thank you. <laughs> Even if you're just saying that to make me feel okay, great. This is a very supportive circle. I like it. Anyway, Adobe Capture is um, essentially. It, I think it's a. It was a free. It may have been like a couple of bucks. I, I don't really remember, but it's uh, an app in which you can take pictures on your phone to inject that image into your phone. But it also turns the image into a smart object, so it's not necessarily just a flat picture of whatever art you created and what I tested just for fun was I, I was lying in bed as I was learning it and reading about it and I turned it around on myself I was wearing one of my mom's old Betty Boop sweatshirts and I took a picture of the sweatshirt of Betty Boop and what I created was it does not look like a sweatshirt anymore it doesn't I don't know if you can resemble that it even is Betty Boop but it's a really cool 3D image that I just started playing and reshaping part of the sweatshirt with to turn it into something completely different. Wow. So I, I just kind of nerded out on playing with this digital <laughs> technology. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'll post the image as well of what I created from, yeah. and now you guys all know that it was originally a Betty Boop sweatshirt. It looks like a really weird dog's chew toy or a bouncy ball. Oh. <laughs> and I'll show you guys. But, uh, yeah, so I'll put a link to that as well for those who are looking to just play around and see what else they can do, maybe make some sort of transformation from art that they already have, or if they have similar interests in creating, I don't know, tarot so cool. cards, <laughs> whatever you want to do for the digital creators out there. But that's it. That's it. I'm going to...
plug all of the information if you're going to want to pick up a copy of The Anxious Teen, if you want to pick up a copy of Christina's book, uh, or if you want to get in touch with her, we'll also be plugging into the show notes her website, which is fresh-insight.ca, correct? Wonderful. We'll type that out for you as well. And are there any last things that you wanted to plug? Any, any last notes we want to leave off on? No, I thank you for having me. I just love connecting with people. And it's so fascinating for me to hear how all of this applies to acting. And I, I took some stuff that you were saying today, too. So I love connecting with people, learning from people. So thanks for having me. That's amazing. Thank well, you. I think we could have continued talking for, for sure. Oh, there's so much yeah. more that I'm, I'm super fascinated by, especially because it's in a very particular realm that's near and dear to my heart. Oh, here's the image, by the way. That's that we. Whoa! <laughs> that used to be that a sweatshirt. That is so cool. Is that weird? Have I showed you that? No. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> cool. Anyway, maybe if uh, you have another book or you have something else that you want to plug or you just want to come back and chat, we would love to sit down with you again in the future. Oh, yay. Well, I'll see you then. I'll awesome. be there. Thank you. And thank you to all our yes, listeners. Thank you. Yeah, be sure to subscribe, like, and all that stuff. Cade, get off social media now. Bye. <laughs>